0: About uh, this fourth shift of the new sort of a new focus, we're to call it revival, reformation, whatever word you want to use. The reformers said the church should always be reforming. There's this movement across North America uh, focusing on recentering the church on Jesus instead of maybe the ideologies of the left and right politically, theologically, but recentering on Jesus. And this isn't necessarily a midpoint between two poles. I would see it more as the way, the road that we need to continually stay on, instead of falling into the ditches, as it were. And so today we're going to continue that series, and I'll have one more uh, in this series, and then it's going to be my, my favorites, and then Q and A uh, on my last few Sundays here at Pilgrim. But. I want to do a little bit of review of that. Today we're going to talk about Pentecost, the sending of the Spirit, which also coincides with the fourth, it's almost like someone planned it that way, uh, the fourth uh, shift in this refocusing on the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And uh, so I want to review the five shifts, and then I want to read to you a little bit of text, uh, some, some passages from Scripture, and then dig into, particularly today, last Sunday we began to talk about this in terms of being open to encountering God, having personal experiences with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and that personal experience absolutely is vital to the Christian life. And I want to say this as well. Our background at this church is a group of churches called the North American Baptist Conference. The North American Baptist Conference. Not to be confused with the Canadian Baptists. Not to be confused with the the Southern Baptists of Canada, which is Canadian National Baptist Convention. Not to be confused with National Baptists. Not to be confused with the 50,000 other varieties of Baptists. Our particular tribe has a unique connection with the idea of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And what I've learned over the years is that most people in North American Baptist churches, like most of us, we actually don't care much about the denomination. We care about people and relationships. But let me just tell a little bit about our denomination. The background is in a movement called pietism. Say it with me, pietism. It's like pie and add tism to it, pietism, all right? Uh, And in that movement, it was part of the uh, ongoing reformation of the church in Europe And there were a bunch of Lutherans, and these were mostly German Lutherans, that had sort of an encounter with uh, mystical experience, with these encounters with the Holy Spirit. And this Pietist movement, there were many sub-schools and varieties that developed throughout that center of continental Europe. And out of that, one of the movements were these Lutherans who felt like it is not enough to just have an intellectual faith. You must have an embodied heart encounter faith with the Spirit, that this matters. And so these Pietists are... The overlap of what becomes groups like the north american baptists were basically lutherans that became more charismatic to put it really crassly Uh, and so in our own baptist history of this particular church historically and the sad news is i don't think most nabers even know their own history on this but it came out of that pietism movement and so we're part of the pietist baptists which included also there was a swedish version back in europe called eventually became the baptist general conference in north america And now these churches are diverse, way beyond those ethnic backgrounds now. They went from more monocultural to many-cultured churches in most places in North America and the globe. Um, Other churches that were in the same movement were the Moravians. I don't know if you've heard about the Moravians, but they also have that same root of that pietist movement that it's not just about the head, but the heart matters and acts of service coming out of a heart filled and uh, uh, immersed in the working of the spirit and a passion for Jesus and the kingdom. Out of that also came groups like the Evangelical Covenant Church and the Evangelical Free Church and other groups that came out of that pietist stream of the Reformation, which is basically, again, Lutherans encountering this idea that it cannot just be scholastic. It has to also be heart. It has to be part of a full-bodied, full-emotion experience as well. This call to submit ourselves to the, the knowledge that resides in our bodies when we welcome the ministry of the Spirit to work in us and indwell in this flesh, in our minds, in our bodies as well. That's part of our history. So sometimes people say, well, are you trying to turn me into a Pentecostal or charismatic? No, I'm trying to remind you of your own roots. Uh, and for most of us, we came into the NAB, outside of the NAB, like we're learning some of this as well. Uh, and, and unfortunately, too much vanilla evangelicalism sometimes sort of dumbs down the church or waters down some of the things that we desperately need, particularly in this time where the church in North America is struggling. And, uh, and, and rightly so. I think we prayed for revival for years. The thing is, judgment has to start in the house of God, and the house of God has been too co-opted by... Ideologies and politics and making all the third level issues in the center instead of getting Jesus in the center, and the revival we're praying for is coming through through the exposure of sin, and guess what that sin exposure isn't the pet sins that your other person across the street deals with. it's the sins within our own camps, and so God is at move in the church in North America, and it's, and it's hard for a lot of places. But it's vital and it's important that we lean into this. What is God saying to the churches? And I think these shifts that we've been talking about speak to that. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I gotta breathe here. I'm just so excited. Not forget to breathe. It's gonna pass out. So, and I have no excuse. Like great with child, pressing on all my organs. I'm just like middle aged man getting fat. So you know, it's, uh, <laughs> there we go. All right. So let's read a few, let's talk about the five shifts and then we'll read the text. So shift number one that we talked about was a different way of reading scripture. Would you say it with me? A different way of reading scripture. One, two, three. A different way of reading scripture. Jesus-centered. And the temptation we have again and again, uh, because it filters into the idolatries that we have, is to read the Bible as if it were a flat book. You do not read the Old Testament by jumping over Jesus. Immediately when we read or teach from the Old Testament, we need to also ask the question of how does Jesus speak into this change, modify or fulfill whatever was this Old Testament expectation or word about God, whether it's about the law or the prophets or the writings, we don't get to jump over Jesus. Unfortunately, often in our churches we jump over Jesus and what that enables us to do is to weaponize the Bible to make it say whatever we want, right? And so Jesus becomes the defining interpretive key to how we read scripture. I talked about that a ton for the almost six years at Pilgrim here, but this is so important. God always looks like Jesus. In fact, the New Testament then tells us, this is how you were to read it. Luke 24, Jesus says, all the law and the prophets and the writings point to him. Everything in the Old Testament points to him. He says he is the fulfillment of the law. And Paul tells us again and again and again that Jesus is the fullness of God, he is the fullest picture. So it's not flat. We start with, who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? How has his teachings, life, death, and resurrection changed how we read this book? If you turn it into a flat book, it is no longer authentic Orthodox Christianity. It may sound like Christianity, but it is not. You may use the same words, but if it is not read through the lens of Jesus, it is not Orthodox Christianity. That is essential. And we lose that again and again and again. Why? Because we leak. We forget. And oh, by the way, Jesus will always bless and provoke us. And some of us don't like the provoking part. We just want to bless me, Jesus, and bless me how I am and bless my thoughts exactly as they already are. I don't want any change in my life. Just baptize whatever I'm already doing, Jesus. And if I can grab a text out of the Old Testament out of context and slap it down to bless my life as it already is, we do that. But that is not faithful Christianity. So this renewal of Jesus-centered brings us back to the first 300 uh, centuries of the church, reminds us again how we interpret Hebrew Bible must be through the Jesus lens. In fact, Paul tells us to do this in Colossians. He tells us when we read in the writings of Hebrews again and again that the law was the schoolmaster meant to bring us to something. We're not supposed to stay under law, but that in him something new is. We'll talk more about that in The Filling of the Spirit. I was going to talk about tongues today, but I'm getting already preaching three other sermons. All right. This is a summary of what we've been talking about for the last weeks here at Pilgrim Church. Number two, a bigger gospel. That the kingdom of God, we are called to community. Say it with me, community. Community. In fact, one of the wonderful, beautiful, frustrating, crazy things about Christianity is this idea of God revealed as Trinity. That God is revealed as relationship, as friendship. That God is eternal love, eternal friendship. And there are these dancing partners within this eternal relationship. The three in one. And the one in three, and while the word Trinity is not used in the Bible, as many cultists are quick to point out, the concept is riven all over the place in Scripture. It's just finding one word to summarize this incredibly amazing thing that God has revealed as relationship, and we are revealed as people who would need community. One of the best gifts our church offers by being a church, and any local church offers, is that we are a community centered on Jesus. That's one of the best gifts we can offer the world because every other place you go for community is going to be centered on something else. And often that something else has an ideology attached and a banner attached which puts someone else as the other. If we keep Jesus at the center, if God revealed his self-sacrificial, other-oriented love, this community has a gift that people need. Wherever they're at in relationship to the center of Jesus, our center as a community is him. The third shift to move on is the new relationship with power. Evil is overcome through suffering, Love, that there's something about the love of God that calls us into a different way of being and relating to power. And we talked a lot about that, so I'm gonna move on to number four, which is today, part two, a clarified purpose and fresh empowerment. The fourth shift is our need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. So stand with me, I'm gonna read a text here. If you're able to do so and willing, no coercion, but if you want to stand with me as we read scripture, I invite you to do so. It's a traditional practice, lowercase t, tradition tradition. I want to read to you from Acts chapter 2, which we did some of last week, but I'm going to continue on the message a little farther from where we read last week. So here we go, Acts chapter 2. Let's hear this narrative once again. Now, when the day of Pentecost had come, this Jewish holiday that Jesus said to wait in Jerusalem until they received power on high, if you read Acts 1, the first few verses. Now, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like a violent wind came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were sitting and tongues spreading out like fire appeared on them and came to rest on each one of them say it with me each one all of them were filled with the holy spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the spirit enabled them or other tongues glossolalia verse 5 now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven residing in Jerusalem And when the sound occurred, the crowd gathered and was in confusion, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Imagine that, if the baby Mandarin I took all of a sudden became full-blown Mandarin and I started preaching in that, you guys would be like, whoa, (laughs) I have a good comedian, there are lot of comedians, okay, all right. Number seven, completely baffled, (laughs) verse seven, completely baffled, they said, aren't all these speaking Galileans? small provincial town, and how is it that each one of them hears them area in our own native languages? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, meaning non-Jews who were following Jewish uh, practices, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own languages about the great deeds God has done. And all were astounded and greatly confused, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others jeered at the speaker, saying, They are drunk on new wine. Verse 14. But Peter stood up. There's a whole sermon right there. Peter, who denied Jesus, slunk away, but filled with the Spirit. But Peter stood up. And with the eleven raised his voice and addressed them and said, You men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem know this and listen carefully to what I say. In spite of what you think, these men are not drunk, for it is only nine in the morning. I mean, come on, they're good Canadians. Verse 16, but this is what was spoken about through the prophet Joel. And in Joel, he quotes Joel chapter 2. And in the last days, it will be, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And I will perform wonders in the sky above and miraculous signs on the earth below. Blood, fire, and clouds of smoke. And the sun will be changed to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter goes on and makes the point and say, what we are experiencing here today in this moment, Acts chapter two, is that which Joel spoke of. This is that which was promised. So Lord, as we look to the rest of this message and ask some questions about empowering of the spirit and particularly about the gift of tongues today, I pray that you would be with me, be with our ears, that we would be attentive. Um, And that we would learn, we would question, we would wrestle. And Lord, for Pilgrim Church, uh, as we're going through a season of transition and shaking and people are traveling and we're also enjoying summer at the same time, God, I I pray that you'd protect this place. Put a hedge of fire around this church and around these people, oh God, uh, that you would guide them and lead them uh, as the baton is being passed off. May it be a healthy ending and a healthy new beginning in this place, and God Bring us together even deeper as community during this time. In Jesus' name, I pray. And if you will say amen and be seated. (laughs) Amen. All right, all right. Uh, This is my favorite subject, so I'm a little windy today. We are not doing communion today because of the the wind uh, forecast ahead of time regarding the pastor. So, um, but I will try to get you out before, yeah, significantly before noon. But here we go. We got to, we'll do what we can in the next 15-ish minutes. This holiday, we remember the sending of the Spirit and really the launching of the church. I wanna play a video uh, this morning about one of the gifts that happens and is talked about at Pentecost and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14 from a guy named Max Lucado who is uh, an older evangelical statesman as it were. Check this out for a second. This will surprise a lot of the audience that already has. you are surprised by church. But you know, when I was 64 on a July morning, um I, I, was, I had taken serious, I had not done anything different except uh, I came across the passage where the Apostle Paul said, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And I guess I thought, oh, I had all the gifts that I was supposed to have given to me when I became a Christian. Well, maybe so, maybe. But he says eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, and so I said, Lord, is there any other gift? You desire for me. And I, I prayed that every morning for two or three weeks, and then one morning, early in the morning, I began praying uh, in a heavenly language. There's more that you can hear about his story. This was, he's now a couple years, I think it was a couple years beyond this. 64, he receives this gift that we often refer to as speaking in tongues. I want to talk about this gift today a little bit on Pentecost, which I don't think I've ever done as sort of as a focus on tongues in particular. I'm not sure I have it, Pilgrim anyway. This is a weird gift. Let's just name it right up. It is a weird gift, right? I mean, if you walk down the street and you hear someone saying incoherent phrases together, you might be tempted to pass along the other side of the street or maybe seek help for this person. You're wondering what's going on. In fact, as we read in Acts chapter 2, in the first um, story of the gift of speaking in tongues, uh, the assumption by some of the onlookers were these men are drunk. So to give you that sense of what does this gift appear or how does it feel to people that may be observing it, uh, maybe with their lenses of this is strange on Different words are used for speaking in tongues, by the way. Uh, ecstatic speech would be one phrase, a little more academic sounding. Ecstatic speech, speech we're caught up into the ecstasy of, a, of this moment. Um, tongues, tongue speech, often are used interchangeably to refer to these words. Uh, the language of speaking in tongues within the New Testament concept, there are two general varieties of tongue speech in the New Testament. One's glossolalia and one is xenolalia. Glossolalia is speaking, just glossa is, gloss is the tongue, but speaking in an unknown language is normally how we'd understand that in English usage. Xenolalia is speaking in someone else's tongue. I don't know if you're familiar with any of the Greek words in English, English borrows like 40% of it's words from other languages. So xenophobia, fear of the other, right? Of the foreigner, of the outsider. So xenolalia uh, is other, the other tongues of a language that you did not learn, but now they're speaking. And that's what we read about in Acts chapter two that they're hearing people speaking in their languages that these other, these people have not learned as just a supernatural divine boom moment. And so it is a weird gift. In most cases today, we're talking mostly about glossolalia, speaking in in phrases, speech, uh, different words that don't convey any particular content. Like it's not, you you wouldn't do a one-to-one interpretation of glossolalia. It's more about letting your tongue sort of play jazz with your words, as it were. Um, And so this understanding of how this is used, Keith Warrington, a a theologian in the charismatic tradition says this, the gift of tongues is best understood, he says this is best understood as an extemporaneous, like off the cuff or spontaneous manifestation in a form that is a quasi language, quasi language, say with me, quasi language, (laughs) like a semi, not quite a full language, right? The speaker is in control of his or her speech and the forming of sounds, Keith goes on, and he says, but the spirit does not manipulate or coerce the speaker into a particular speech pattern. It is possible, he says, that the sounds themselves already existed in the mind and experience of the speaker being reconstituted in the form of the tongues he or she employs through it. It's also possible that the previously unimagined phonetic forms might not be of your language or languages you've ever heard, most Pentecostals conclude that speaking in tongues is a phenomenon that has divine and human elements woven together, dirt and divinity, as everything of the Spirit in us is, and that the Spirit inspires the manifestation, but the person has to choose to articulate the sound. Like, people aren't forced into this. They're choosing to yield, let themselves go into an emotional, liminal space. So these two general kinds of uses of tongues in the Bible are xenolalia and glossolalia. And there's also personal and and public use of the gift of tongues within the new testament context other passages we could read in fact 1 corinthians chapters 12 and first corinthians chapter 14 talk a lot about the different spiritual gifts and paul uses different language pneumatica like this the spirituals and also charismata i swear as well to talk about these gifts And so there's a context of the gifts of the Spirit that are for the public assembly. Now, most evangelicals generally won't practice this in a public gathering like this. Most NAB Baptist churches, you would not necessarily hear someone give a word in tongues and then interpret, as Paul says, if you're going to do it in this public display kind of way, where you're drawing attention to yourself uh, in the assembly of the saints, of of the church, of the believers and the seekers. So this idea, and most evangelicals don't do that, part of it is a reaction against Pentecostals who got way overzealous, sort of like the church at Corinth as well, where the use of tongues could be very disruptive and not necessarily in building up the body. Paul also talks about in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 about the use of tongues as an individual building up prayer language. And like Max Lucado was saying here, at age 64, he is filled with the spirit with the gift of speaking in tongues, or given the gift of speaking in tongues, he is using it as a prayer language. And this is something that I think everyone should be open to. Uh, This idea of letting yourself be caught up into a state of play with the Holy Spirit. And that Paul says this is something that will build up the individual. The thing Paul says about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is that when he prays in the Spirit, which is generally understood to mean when he's praying in this tongues, glossolalic way, When he prays in the spirit, he's building himself up, but he also prays in his mind as well, which would be the normal way we use language, right? Like if I pray, dear Jesus, please bless your people today. I'm praying with my mind in a normal language that the hearers can understand um, or any known human language. And he says that when I pray in tongues, it's doing something inside of me that's different than the mind when I'm praying in my known languages, right? And he's saying there's something about that that empowers and builds up me that I've experienced a direct personal empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And this is why, one of the many reasons why I think it's important to be open to these gifts, like speaking in tongues. So a few things I want to say about this. There's so much I want to say, but my primary thesis or, or argument as a pastor, as a pastor theologian about this gift, is that this gift is vital in terms of having a direct, personal, empowering encounters with the Spirit. In fact, I would say this. I'm going to say a little wordy here, but I'll unpack it. That speaking in tongues is a primary gift for the sustaining, sustaining prophetic empowerment and liberating play. It is a useless gift in that its foolishness results in strength that is different from different models of how we get strength and power from the non-kingdom or the non-play life. So speaking in tongues, again, with play and the prophetic, this is a sustaining gift of play, of entering into that other state, that good worship, good art, mystical union, where we encounter a union with God as we pray in this, and a prophetic liberating empowerment. So it sustains the idea that we can enter into Sabbath rest, we can enter into play, this gift of joy, experience of joy and emotion. In some ways, it turns you into a living, walking piece of performing art. If you are open to this gift, as you pray in this unknown language and you yield to it for times in your life or throughout your day, that it does something to you. And it's something very specific, something very blessed, something that God is pouring through you to help you know that you are loved, you're empowered regardless. And you say, well, this is a strange way to go about it. Well, it is. In some ways, it turns you into a walking parable and a prophet. Again, it's like denunciation of evil meets performance art put together, which actually a lot of art is, but now it's through you and these syllables that are nonsensical in a lot of ways. Well, why would God use a thing like that? Well, why do you think God would use a thing that doesn't allow us to control the words in that cognitive, like, if with my mind way? Well, it means that you're not controlling... You're not trying to bring order to your world through speech, but rather there's a, a mystical union. There's an emotional encounter. There's something that you encounter in the play that gives you that sense of somebodyness, that sense of who I am, that sense of purpose that I'm not trying to continually to package and commodify. Because we as Christians and non-Christians, we like to control things through speech, right? Like language is a huge. The empire cares about speech. Our government wants to legislate. What can you say? What can't you say? And a lot of times we agree with it as a common good. You shouldn't say like certain hateful things, right? But the empire also will legislate sometimes against Jesus' claims of he is the ultimate king and ultimately Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And here's the thing. Sometimes you cannot pray against empire if you are an oppressed person. In fact, when you talk about the early Pentecostal revivals across um, different places around the globe, Oftentimes there's oppression, but here's the thing. If the government's listening in on me, interceding in tongues, how are they going to prosecute that speech? Other than, well, he said a bunch of nonsense. But if in my mind I'm praying about oppression, but I begin to pray in the spirit using tongues language, there is non-prosecutable content. Tongue speech turns you into a walking prophet of protest. So it empowers you in play. It gives you prophetic empowerment as well, especially if you're being crushed. Now, if you're in a context where you have privilege, and you choose to seek the gift of tongues, what does it do for you? It humbles you. So for the disempowered, it empowers them as a direct encounter with the mystical unspeech that the empire cannot, the powers over us cannot prosecute. But for the person of privilege, when you choose to say, I'm gonna yield myself and I am gonna be open to this gift, it calls you to enter into humility. It is a gift that brings about humility that I'm going to enter into this nonsensical thing of the Spirit to receive, and it brings a deep humility. But guess what? With God's gift of humility also comes empowerment. And I think that's the thing I want to say, too, about tongues. So tongues calls us into play. It calls us into being a prophetic kind of people. And thirdly, you don't live in the state of play. I can go and play soccer. I can't, but, I mean, many people can play soccer. Uh, And I can get caught up in the game, right? And the game does have rules and boundaries and such that, that are given in that. But when I'm actually on the field in the game of soccer, or whatever game, let's just use soccer, I can get caught up in the plays. I can get caught up in, 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 in being engaged in that. But I can't live permanently on the soccer field, right? I mean, I could try, I guess. But I got to eat. I got other non-play things that the rest of my life is made up with. But what does participating in sport and game and art do for us? it brings meaning and joy into the mundane things of life as well. And it reminds us that we are created for more than just grinding away at our job and paying a paycheck and handing it all over to my wife. i am made for more than that. No, I'm okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, I'm made for more than that. But it does tell us that there's other things in our lives that we're called to engage with. And we are, we have our sense of identity beyond simply whether we're Well, if you're in a communist society, simply a a cog of the party, or you're in a capitalist society, a cog of the monopolies, whatever they may be, there's more about you in that. And so it empowers you then, in that play, to come back out and to work for change in society in line with the values of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God values say that each and every individual is created in the image and likeness of God, that everyone has value and worth. And God, in fact, by the Holy Spirit, wants to give spiritual gifts to all people everywhere, that that is his intention, that we understand our giftedness and blessedness and we are blessed to be a blessing to other people. And my contention is the gifts like speaking in tongues are weird and strange because they strike at the heart of how we seek to bring control and order through our language and naming. And part of that's fine and God-given, but part of it becomes idolatrous. And this casts down the idolatry of language as well by calling us and drawing us into a different way of relating to Language and our attempts at control when, in fact, we want to release our control for the order of God in creation and in our lives. We want that kind of power, the power from below at work within us. Now, I said a lot. I should take a drink of coffee. I probably shouldn't take a drink of coffee, but I'm going to take a drink of coffee. This Pentecost, I guess, remind you of this, that speaking in tongues calls us into being living performance art, a living parable that cannot be controlled by empire. And in fact, we can only yield and choose to participate. We can't even order it through our, other than what I'm trying to do to explain it. The second thing I want to say again and remind you is that it empowers us to be prophetic presence and to be present and it empowers us through our bodies as well. And it sends us out to work for liberation. And these things all dovetail together. Our sense of play and our sense of direct personal empowerment, our blessedness, God's giftedness to us. This sense of um, prophetic speech and the liberation that can come through that prophetic speech for us, for others, and for continuing the work of the kingdom of God. Now, <clears throat> well, let me say a little more of the prophetic piece, and I'm going to land it here. Everyone said amen. All right. Number one, three prophetic moves in speaking in tongues, I think, are three things that turn the prophetic liberation purpose. The chosen participation of an individual to seek and receive and use the gift of tongues requires us as individuals to critique our own understanding of language and our desire to control. You aren't going to receive the gift of tongues if you want to maintain uh, strict control in that sense of ordering life through language simply through focusing on the mind and forgetting the heart and the body. So it critiques us living in our minds versus living in our bodies and our emotions. And so our personal power is checked while at the same time giving us new empowerment by the Spirit as well. So it, it, it causes you to experience a prophetic sort of wrestling intention within yourself if you're going to seek this gift and receive this gift. It will require some striving and struggle. Old timers would talk about waiting on the Lord in prayer to receive gifts like the gift of tongues or prophetic words or words of knowledge. That prayer struggle is part of subduing our desire to control and order through our mental, uh, through, through simply naming and ordering through language, but actually submitting and, and being still and being present to ourselves, to our bodies, and to the Holy Spirit. The second move of prophetic, of speaking in tongues, if you choose to pursue the gift, the second one, if you receive this gift, is to, move from, is to move of critiquing the cultures that want to control in any language. All languages seek to bring sort of control. And in fact, empires, when they want to control, what do they do? They sit there and they try to censor language. We see this in the states around all the debates. We see this, uh, the left and the right. We see this censoring in, in more authoritarian societies as well. Speaking in tongues, again, says at the end of the day, God's even going to strike at the heart of humans trying to, to, to destroy and subdue one another through their use of language and control of language. Because when you begin to speak, and I'm not going to speak in my normal prayer language, but I'm going to use kind of a, a parody of it. She got a Honda and we're left in a Hyundai. You know, you all heard that one, right? Pentecostal joke. Okay, all right. It should play well in Vancouver, but it didn't play very well. Okay, move on, shall move on? But, you know, this idea of using this language, it critiques the hegemony, the control of the empire as well. And the third prophetic move is that it empowers new speech in our normal languages through the person using their normal languages when you come out of the speaking in tongues or the play event, which I would say tongues is a type of play with the Holy Spirit in ourselves, within the community as well. And so then it moves us out when we come out of play into non-play life to be different. Oh, I want to say more, but I can't. I'm running out of time. I got to land it. So much goodness in this, and I want you to have all of it. <laughs> so, what do we do with this? So, what? Uh, let's, so what? I think a few things. When we talk about other non cognitive use of language, non mind use, but spirit use, we talk about groans. Uh, there's a spirit praise with groans. We talk about if you've been caught up in grief and you've ever, ever had a real good cry and sob and you've let your body and your emotions like fully go into that, you're very close to the concept of what I think speaking in tongues wants to enable you to do more regularly. When you've been overwhelmed with joy and you have laughed so hard, I was gonna say that you would pee but then I thought I shouldn't say that alive so I won't say that. You've laughed so hard that your body, you've just like, it feels like your whole body just washed over with all of the things. You've laughed that hard, strike that from the record. Okay, all right. There's something about that union between mind and body, and there's empowerment in that. And when you come out of that, yes, we know we can talk about the chemicals and all that in the body that are being released, but also this place of what if there was a gift that you could access that space of emotional being-on-the-line liminality? What if there was something where you actually intentionally said, I'm going to release control for the order of God in order to enter into this play moment, and you could do it anytime, anywhere? I think that's one of the advantages of praying and receiving and being open to seeking and wrestling through to receiving that gift of tongues. Something beautiful, something empowering. So seek, so how do we go about seeking this gift? Well, man, I was raised in Pentecostalism. There was good experiences and bad experiences. If you want, you can come up here afterwards and I can shout at you, dump oil on you and spit in your face. That was how I was experienced growing up. That's one method I think some people, God blesses all of that nonsense sometimes because we are all dirt and divinity and process. Um, I'm more of a chill prayer, I'm more of like a Lutheran charismatic these days, you know, but, you know, uh, and a But I think one of it is, remember, you want to seek Jesus, and because here's the thing. These gifts, Jesus tells them, in the launch of the church, Acts chapter 1 again, wait until in in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high, meaning the Spirit. He told in John, the end of John, he says, you know, breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. John's relaying of some of like synthesizing Matthew and Luke uh, and Mark together. You also have uh, other things where they're waiting in Jerusalem. They're praying. They're in a tarrying moment. They are waiting in the upper room. The old timers would use the word tarrying, which is just to wait with silence and word prayers and worship and say, God, I want this gift. But you're worshiping not seeking, you're not worshiping a gift. You're worshiping the giver of the gift who is Jesus. In fact, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit In the giving of the Spirit, we see later in New Testament Jesus, but it's the gift of the Father through Jesus that we can receive this empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, yes, we have the Spirit at salvation. You cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit indwelling with you. But this is the sort of the empowering side of it—not just the salvific salvation side of the Spirit, which you have when you say yes to Jesus, give your allegiance to Him. God dwells in you by His Spirit. But there's an ongoing empowering work of the Spirit as well. Now, different people talk about this differently. Charismatic Lutherans would say, well, you got it all when you got saved. You just got to learn how to tap into it. Fine. I'm fine with that language. Some Baptists would be that way as well. Some of the more charismatic or Wesleyan Pentecostal side would say, yeah, you're indwelt by the Spirit at salvation, but you need to have this ongoing and filling baptism. Paul talks about keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. Um, I don't care how you get there in terms of that part of it. Like, There's many different ways to parse that, and not everyone agrees. But even before the Pentecostal movement, we talked about Pentecostalism within evangelicalism, and then, then the Pentecostals hijacked the word Pentecostal. But we talked about this empowering presence, the Christian lines, alliance, the pietists, this part of there is more of the ongoing relationship. And in particular, if you say, Lord, I want to be open to any gift you have for me, but I really would like to lean into this tongues thing. I found this over the years, is that if you already say no to the speaking in tongues piece, then you're probably going to be closed and, and just resistant to it, right? But if you come with an open-handedness, you may receive other gifts, words of wisdom, prophecy, other word gifts. Remember, he's using the body, the spirit. The spirit tears down this Western wall we put between the mind and the body and puts us back into our body. And that also scares a lot of us Baptists as well, because we're like, we have done so much work at separating ourselves from the rest of our body. Uh, we, <laughs> we're scared of that. Pietist Baptists, by the way, said, no, no, we got to reconnect those. Um, So seek the giver, seek Jesus, seek God when you ask for these gifts of the Spirit. Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we are not to be ignorant of the spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse one, he says this, I earnestly desire to seek the spiritual gifts. It is not against, it is the will of God, the will of Christ that you seek to be empowered by the Spirit in various supernatural gifts. It is part and parcel of the package. Don't throw out that part of your inheritance in Jesus. But we seek through Jesus. So don't be ignorant of the gifts. And finally, Be open. I am delighted that Max Lucado, evangelical statesman guy in North America, at age 64, 64, not at some junior high camp meeting where we didn't know if it was the spirit or hormones. It's 64! This brother is filled and receives this gift. Think about that. I was raised in that environment. I didn't receive the gift of tongues right away, but I was taught to expect it as normative. Now, I have debates and questions, and you can buy me coffee or beer about that later. We can talk about it. But, uh, you know, in general, though, I'm still a lowercase pentecostal. But in that, I didn't receive it the first time I saw it, but I created space, and I didn't have the distraction of my phone. we got to, like, put our phones in the freezer and spend time with the Lord throughout our day. we got to find ways to marinate in the presence of God. And here's the thing. Luke, who is, like, the charismatic gospel writer... Charismatic Jesus, charismatic community. Luke and Acts, written, made to be read together. Tells this story about Jesus, relays to Jesus telling the parable about the good father. And he says this, and this story is also told in Matthew. I believe it's Matthew. I didn't uh, have to look in my notes, but I don't want to because we're almost done. But uh, you can find it, Google it. The story of Jesus the good father says, which one of you, if your child comes to you and asks for a loaf of bread, is going to give him a snake or a stone? And I think Matthew's version, it says this, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good gifts? Luke gets more specific. He says this, Jesus is telling this parable. He says, which one of you, if your, if your child asks for a loaf of bread, is going to give them a stone or a snake, stick? He uses a couple different images there. And he says this, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit if you ask? This is a gift of the Father through Jesus. The empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. It is what launched. There were followers of Jesus before Pentecost, but the church happened at Pentecost. And throughout Acts, there's narratives. And I think you can build theology off of these narratives. There was old arguments that you couldn't with a bunch of nonsense. But again, chopping the head off from the body. Uh, It says again and again, when they sought and they prayed The Holy Spirit filled them. And oftentimes the resultant was things like the gift of tongues. But you don't camp out on that. You go back to that. You're empowered by that. And then you're sent out into non-play life, empowered directly by the Spirit. And maybe why churches in North America have really wrestled with this is because, like I said last week, you are all called to be mystics, to be people of the Spirit, have encounters with God. And here's the thing, when you have an encounter with God, you need to check it, you need to test it, I don't have time to get into that message, that'll be another day, another church I guess, uh, you know, we, to test these things for sure with scripture, tradition, reason, experience, all that, of course, of course, of course. But in general, we're way overboard on that and we have not even opened ourselves up to the experience. So this morning as we conclude, I'm going to invite you to stand with me and uh, don't worry, I'm not going to do anything weird, I know, I know my audience here, I love you, I don't want to freak you out any more than I already have. <laughs> But my challenge to you is, would you be open to seeking this empowering presence? If you want me to pray with you, I'd be more than happy to do that here or in another context. But would you orient your heart towards, Lord, I want all that you have for me. Could we learn from this old guy, although now that I'm in my 40s, old guy at 60s, feeling strangely threatening to me to say that. But Max Suclado, Lord, is there other things you want me to open to? would you position your heart to be open to the empowering presence of the Spirit? Because let me tell you, church, we need the power of the Spirit in our context, in our world, if we're going to share Jesus in a winsome, non-coercive, non non-power-over way like we have so often modeled to us by dysfunctional things in our churches. If there's going to be revival and reformation in the church in North America, it must be of the Spirit of Jesus. Another word for the Holy Spirit in the New Testament a couple of times is used, the Spirit of Jesus. I like that. Reminds us of the Holy Spirit, points us to Jesus. We need that power. If we're going to see next generations come to Christ, we don't want them to be tied to all the garbage that has bogged down the church. We want it tied to Jesus, and through his Spirit, that power is there. It's God's empowering presence. So I want to pray, and then we're going to sing a song, and we'll dismiss you today. But my homework for you is, Would You Wait on the Lord Would you create space in your days and schedule? Yes, for all the other things you pray for, but specifically just to be in the presence of God through silence and listening. And if he gives you this gift, you may have syllables pop in your head. It's usually how this thing works from others and my own experience anyway, and others' experience that I've heard or read about. God's not gonna force your mouth to speak in tongues. That's the good news for us Baptists. He's not gonna force us to do this. But if he drops that in your mouth, speak it out. And maybe it's going to be alone in a prayer time. Maybe it may be in a worship environment. And let him do that. Have this gift, this empowering presence of the Spirit, this prayer language. And there's two uses, the public and the private. The private we seek and the public could happen in prayer meetings or other contexts as well. We actually pause in each worship service. If someone had a gift in tongues and they need to interpret it in a language that's common and no one for the public assembly, but don't have time to talk all about that today. But seek the Spirit, the infilling of the Spirit, and there will be evidences. It may be tongues, it could be prophetic words, it could be visions, dreams, but he wants to speak through you to you in your body and bring these together. Okay, let me pray. Lord, thank you for my long-suffering congregation that's about to boot me out the door because I preach too long. (laughs) And my horrible humor, another reason. Uh, Religious humor, Jesus, help us. (laughs) And God... My desire for these people, your people, my people, at least until the stewardship baton is passed, is that this Pentecost, they would have an openness towards the fullness of the Spirit. And God, I know that you desire to help bring their mind and body back together. And yes, sometimes we need to do that through healing and therapy and all of those things. Yes, yes, yes to all of that, but also through the direct empowerment of your spirit in in that we become uh, reacquainted through the play of the spirit within us and through us and even our language. And Lord, we confess that, yeah, we, uh, like all humans, are tempted to try to bring order and control. And we see the hegemony of language and the language of the empires around us, the kingdoms of the Mm world's. So, Lord, thank you that you sent a weird, strange, crazy gift to just say, hey, you know what? I'm God, and there's another way. There's another way to work. There's another way to experience power. May we lean into that, be open to it, receive it. And, Lord, for any follow-up conversations that need to happen, because on any given Sunday, you're not going to ever touch on all the different things, pray that we'd be open to have conversations about this, to wrestle with it. And Lord, you said that when the perfect comes, tongues will cease, and the perfect has not come yet. But one day you will come, and all these gifts, the only ones that remain are faith, hope, and love. Love remains. So, Lord, let us lean into the gifts that are for this side of the eternity. Thank you for each person here today. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you lead us in just some worship, and then we'll we'll end it.